Hello, and welcome to Code and Crack, the succinct data structures edition. This is your weekly technology digest from the team here at Terminus TV, where the crack is always Moorish. We break up the chat into three segments uh, and talk about things that are uh, exciting for us internally here in Terminus TV land. Technology out there in the world uh, and something topical. So this week we are going to talk about succinct data structures given the title of the episode. We're going to ask the question, what is AI? Is it merely a marketing term or is there something more substantial there? Uh, I think it's probably somewhere between the two. And then finally, we'll talk about could 3D printing change the world? Has it already changed the world? Will it change the world more? Uh, I'm Luke Feeney. It is Friday uh, and we are joined by some of the greatest minds and thinkers this planet has ever known. Firstly, we have the high priest to prologue, the benevolent dictator for life himself, Gavin. Hello. We have, well, I mean, I think it's, uh, we're looking at Matthias's screen and what a week it has been for the speed freak, Matthias. <laughs> Hello there. Uh, the man who puts the dev in DevOps, Robin. Yo. The Viceroy of Visualizations, the Marketeer's Marketeer. Say hello, Vivek. Hello, everyone. Here we go. So, Matthias, what, what are we looking at here? Well, believe it or not, we're actually looking at some uh, Rust code this week. It's usually wow. Prolog, but uh, today it is all about Rust. And uh, what we're looking at specifically is our... Uh, implementation for dictionaries so every string in the system gets stored in a dictionary uh, so that we can easily map between a string representation of the thing and a numerical representation of that string which we then use in all the other places like in all the uh, triples we just refer to string by numbers uh, so we have to do the mapping here and it's yeah it's an example of one of the uh, succinct data structures uh, that we use and what so is succinct. a succinct data structure? Yes, like why? yes, why? very yeah. good question. <laughs> so, yeah, succinct data structure. Uh, data structures can be expressed in various ways, right? Like when you have a, uh, a JSON, for example, like a natural way to express it is just as a text, like in the most uh, user-readable uh, version that you would like to see uh, when actually dealing with this thing as a user. Um, but that's a very uh, large representation. Uh, there is like a lot of, there's a lot of ways there, a lot of uh, potential to compress that down further. And if you go to the other end of the spectrum, like we have actual compression algorithms, like uh, we have GZIP and stuff like that, tools that can really bring down the code size to, uh, or the code size, the, the data size to a bare minimum. Uh, and as I believe there's actually like a theoretical minimum that you could achieve. Uh, and often they don't quite reach that, but uh, getting close there. Um, 
but uh, yeah, so there's there's a bit of a problem with a format like that, and that is that when you get that small, to do anything useful with the data that you have, you'd first have to fully decompress it, and uh, then you get something back that you can work with. Uh, so what is a succinct data structure? It, it tries to be kind of in between those two extremes. So it is a compression, but it's a compression which uh, leaves some properties intact. It makes it so that your data is still uh, queryable in some desirable way. It can still be searched through. And, and that's obviously very convenient for a database where we obviously want to store our stuff uh, in as little bytes as possible, uh, but we have the we have the other concern of also wanting to be able to search through it as fast as possible. Uh, so that balance, uh, yeah, that that's a constant search for the best data structures. Well, wasn't wasn't that a monologue? I no, it's yeah. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like the meaning of the word succinct. Just say things in the fewest words possible, <laughs> but you're still saying it. You haven't transferred into something else. <laughs> that's it so this uh this succinct data struct here the front coded dictionary that's um it's a way of like so it's a log-like entry into a, a list of possible um elements that you might have right and this gives you some yes. way to look up an index for a given uh data point is that right yeah, so so the idea of the uh, of the PFC dict is uh, that we store our uh, our strings uh, in blocks, and uh, well, yeah. So we we have a sorted list of strings, and then we take every eight of those strings and we call that a block, and because they're sorted, uh, they will have some commonality especially when you think about like URIs they all tend to start with like HTTP colon slash slash and then something else right and if you have a domain that you use quite often in your notes as as tends to happen in RDF data you will actually also probably have some sort of domain that that is shared in common between a bunch of strings and so what a PFC deck does is for each block it finds out what uh, what that common substring is uh, and then for the other strings, it only has to share, it only has to save uh, what comes after that common prefix. Uh, and that way, like if we quickly want to find a string, uh, we don't have to search through all the strings. We only have to search through uh, the blocks and then try to find a block where uh, the prefix matches what we're actually looking for. And then we only have to look inside that single block for the actual string uh, that we are interested in. And, and that speeds up these looks up, uh, lookups uh, quite a bit. So I have a question, and mm -hmm. it might be sort of slightly uh, theoretical and strange. If these succinct data structures are at the the, the kind of way station between queryable and small, like that kind of perfect balance. Why doesn't everybody use them? Mm, I think they're actually quite widely used uh, in, in, in different formats. But um, like the type of data structure you use is very dependent on uh, on the sort of concern that you have. Uh, so people would use different ones. So, um, so one place where I think it's used um, is where people are trying to load enormous graphs into memory in order to make them searchable. So there are others that are doing this as well, usually for bespoke reasons. But one of the reasons I think that it's not so common is that most succinct data structures are not so easy to modify. 
Um, oftentimes, there's a phase of a build of the succinct data structure. Um, and yeah. then once it's succinct, it's very hard to change that. So like with a PFC, you can't just go in and insert things in the middle of it because uh, otherwise it breaks its properties. So exactly. Um, so it actually matches very closely or it, it, it matches very closely with the philosophy of an immutable database, but not a mutable database. So there's a kind of overlap there between succinct data structures and immutable databases and the, the sort of lack of attention to immutable databases and another kind of data structure, uh, which is the, the, um, the persistent data structure. So the idea of a persistence means you don't update, uh, you only expand. <laughs> and so uh, we're kind of using succinct data structures and persistent data structures together. And they kind of, they actually, they, um, there's some, some nice synergies there. Right, so it's each structure that we have, we basically save uh, to disk as is, and then loading it is basically just reading it from disk again, doing very little to no processing on it, and and then your database and is a memory basically. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting why people make these different choices about the um, things. Uh, like, what what would be the common, most common format for? Uh, another database would be trying to achieve something similar. Oh, uh, for you mean like in Postgres or something yeah, like that, or in 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 like Neo4j or something like that. I actually, I think in Neo4j they were using adjacency lists, weren't they, Matthias? I mean, I don't remember. I actually, I it's been a while since I looked at the the deep uh, yeah. technical stuff, but in 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 um, most standard databases. Uh, they would use quite a different uh, mechanism for representing these things. So indexing is usually external. Um, so like most of our data structures are unusual in that succinct data structures have a tendency to be what you call a self-index. And a self-index means that the data and the index are the same thing. Um, and that's a little funny. So like, you know, like with this PFC, uh, you don't have a separate block of all the strings and then an index that tells you how to get to them. You actually just have uh, a representation of the strings. Well, no, actually. <laughs> as you, well, kind of. I mean, like, if like there is no plate. Like, if you go down into one of the records for one of the strings, it doesn't have sufficient mem uh, information at that record itself. You have to build the record up from the prefix. That's true. But what we do have sort of an index structure, like we know, like we have this large uh, byte array of, of all the strings, but then we also have offsets in that byte array to say like That's where right. does every block begin? So you don't actually have to scan through the whole thing and find out where the terminators are. The, it's it's just in a different uh, index structure, basically. Index structure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's not completely a self-index, but there's a lot of um, self-indexing going on at the same time. Now, with the with the uh, B tree, you'd have a, usually you would have a completely external uh, index, and then you would have the data representation, and then you would just append to that data representation, and then do some kind of cleanup later, so that you would move things around at a subsequent time uh, when it was convenient. And that's like the vacuum cleaner process in in Postgres. Nice. So just uh, curious, like uh, it uses compression, these data structures. Is it very CPU intensive? Uh, so no, it, it, it really is not. Uh, I mean, I should say it's not when you, when you read it because uh, that's, that's what they're really optimized for. Uh, writing them, 
it can be a little expensive. I don't know how it exactly compares with uh, actual compression algorithms. I think it's still better than those because it has to do less work. But then obviously it also reaches a far less optimal compression. Like compression algorithms just do that compression thing very well. <laughs> yeah. So when when we're when you're writing into this structure for the um, for the PFC, like what kind of strings are allowed? Is it does it uh, do any kind of like um, encoding of the bytes as they come in, so that you have like terminators and stuff like that, or how, so. How does the... The assumption here is basically it's all UTF-8 strings. Uh, and UTF-8 strings, uh, they are... Uh, yeah, No, they, they're not zero-terminated, but like the zero is not allowed uh, inside of a UTF-8 string. And that allows us to use zero as a terminator. Okay. So you can already assume, because it's UTF-8 encoded, yeah. that you're safe. Exactly, and because this is Rust code, we actually have that guarantee. Like that, strings don't suddenly have a zero in them. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, beautiful, cool. And so, you is there a theoretic minimum size that you could get it to uh, full stop? And like, how much um, decompression is required for something that's super compressed? I mean. Could you kind of have it at a tiny, tiny size and then have some sort of super rapid decompression in order to get it back up to a um, succinct data structure size and then query it? So I'm I'm not super into uh, the, te the information theory, mm. but I believe there is actually a minimum size. Yeah, so yeah. like if you if you put a constraint on it, like you say it has to be queryable in certain amount of uh, in a certain order of time then there is like a theoretic minimum size bound that they can give for some of these. And then, uh, yeah, so it is possible to... to... Well, I, I believe even with without concerns, like even if your concern is only like, I need to be able to reconstruct this data perfectly, even if it takes me like 5 billion years. That's right. I think even then there's like a theoretical minimum that you can reach before. Like that's just, uh, it's, it's like this concept of information density. Uh, and the fact that whatever you're doing, you, you still have like a particular uh, amount of information that you're expressing. And you can only compress so much before you have to start throwing information away. But as for the actual theoretical underpinnings and like what actually that minimum is, that's, I don't know right now. So what we're talking about, like the event horizon of a, of a black hole that's, or something? That, that's kind of, yeah, yeah. Thinking in that direction. Yeah. 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 We need I to mean, I... yeah. So, so for for sussing data structures, yeah, it, it it really depends on what you still want to support. Uh, like the less operations you still uh, need to support of your data structure, like the more fancy things you can do. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, the hard limit is that theoretical limit of uh, not being able to do anything anymore except decompress to to its original. Okay. And so I don't think could... I don't think there's really a theoretical. Uh, or a particular operation, but I don't know. So are, so are, are we excluding anything in ours? Is there, a, is there an overhead? I mean, is there a trade-off here to say there are certain things that we're excluding by using succinct data structures? Yeah, so, I mean, if we, we, we could use, um, you know, I, I mean, since, since we've already chosen the immutability route, there's a lot of sense in trying to find some kind of uh, nice middle ground, which is quite 
compact in terms of its representation because if you're immutable you don't want to be adding new data that's really expansive in size but for instance the pfc there's a huge range of pfc like dictionaries um and they all have slightly different properties with different compression rates uh and you know it's just it's sort of a trade-off with how long does it take you to create them how long does it take you to read from them and search them um, and sometimes the constant factors matter a lot too. So, I mean, even though they're all sort of log-like or they might have the same sort of computational complexity uh, in practice, you, you, you know, a constant factor can make a difference in terms of uh, performance. Okay. So, yeah, that's the answer is there are <laughs> other approaches. And then, and then there's other possible ways, like I, we have explored in the past, like looking at other succinct data structures that are more tree-like to do the representation of commits. Um, and I, I think some of those... Like uh, a Merkle yeah. tree or something? It's like called, they're like, um, uh, like well, let's see, what, like K2 trees as an example of one. So that a K2 tree that's uh, altered to add persistence might be uh, might be interesting. Because noms, those guys used some sort of tree, didn't they? They did, yeah. They have a tree-like data structure for noms. Yeah, 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 yeah. And their noms is the technology behind Dilt. For anybody who's listening, there, mm. another uh, immutable um, database. And they use some sort of tree. Some sort of Merkle tree sort of thing, if I recall correctly. Named after the former Chancellor of Germany. That's made up, obviously. It's obviously not made, made after her. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but nobody picked me up on it quickly enough, guys. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, I just had a baby run into the room while you said that. So. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, segue daintily onto to topic number two. Uh, this is what is AI? So, what is AI? Yeah, that's a good question. So, exactly. I mean, this is something that I found very interesting because I guess, well, I was still at university uh, doing my, or I was just in my uh, postdoctorate at uh, DCU and started doing quite a lot of. Um, machine learning stuff and looking at, because I had a friend who was really interested in uh, restricted Boltzmann machines, so I was playing around with them a lot at the time. And there was this kind of shift uh, in thinking about AI. So previously, if you go back to like the AI before the AI winter in the 1980s, people would be talking a lot about um, logical and symbolic manipulation um, and creating sort of expert systems and these sorts of things. And now it seems like there's been a big shift in what, like, if you said some that you did symbolic AI now, I think a lot of people would be like, well, that's not really AI. Um, so there's been a big shift in language, I think, towards unexplainable AI. <laughs> so, so if it's if it's a black box, it's AI. And, and if, if you can kind of explain how it works, then it probably isn't. I don't know what people think of that characterization, but it, it feels that way to me. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there's certainly a lot of marketing in the term AI now and people making claims that they're doing AI and people seem more comfortable when they talk about machine learning rather than AI and therefore mm -hmm. it becomes a kind of term across. But obviously machine learning uh, excludes the, the symbolic AI to a certain degree. Um, yeah. So yeah, even the, even the concept of like machine learning I find a little bit weird because like 
for instance, if you have a regression, if you do like a regression or a logistic regression, what you're doing is you're trying to find your learning based on data points, uh, some parameter, and you're trying to guess what that parameter is based on the information. And those, those sorts of techniques or even Bayesian techniques, those kinds of things, um, I think, you know, those have as much right to be called, um, you know, artificial intelligence as, as like deep learning or neural nets. But I, I wonder if people put them in the, the same box. It seems to me that they don't, that oftentimes those sort of mathematical optimization techniques are also considered not AI. And then I, then I sort of wonder, like, well, what is... Why is it? Uh, <laughs> why is one thing AI and another thing isn't? What is the the key ingredient that makes you artificial intelligence? What what do you think it should should be? I wonder. What do you think, uh, Sean? The key ingredient to make something artificial intelligence is that yeah, the question? That's yeah. it. <laughs> it uh, depends on how you define intelligence. Yeah. I mean, artificial is the easy part. It's, <laughs> it's not uh, not human, um, but uh, yeah, intelligence. I think we've we I think we have uh, over the years a higher and higher expectation of what intelligence is. I think that is kind of what Gavin was saying. Yeah. So maybe it's uh, maybe it's just changed. we've changed the bar. <laughs> Yeah, I think if people yeah. from the 1960s and 70s were looking at computer systems today, they'd say that they represented artificial intelligence in many ways. I mean, even just fairly simple things that we consider to be fairly mundane in you know prediction and um, bits like that that Google products and Amazon products pretty frequently um, deploy as tools to, for engagement. Yeah. Um, uh, so it is. There is a bar changing, and now we because it's been taken over by by marketing so much AI. Um, it, it, you know, people talk about um, general AI much more now. Yeah, so it's starting to shift towards wanting to be something comparable to human intelligence in a particular field. Exactly. Than, yeah. Which is kind of what expert systems were supposed to be as well, though. No. Well, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, they were effective, though, as well. So, I mean, there's a great examples. I think it's in the Norvig, um, Norvig's book on artificial intelligence programming, which, uh, by the way, has almost nothing to do with neural nets. The entire book uh, <laughs> would, would seem out of place now because it's almost entirely uh, symbolic computations that are in there. But he was saying that expert systems, they had some blood pathology uh expert systems that when handed to a doctoral can you know a, to a, a master's student they could do better than uh, all but the very highest performing doctors um, in terms of being able to assess whether someone had a particular blood disease so in the sense that I guess that's a little bit cybernetic or cyborg creation uh, like rather than straightforward it does it by itself um, because you needed a human operator to work the expert system, but it, it was certainly effective uh, at at outperforming, you know, most doctors. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. I guess that's cy more cy cyborg. <laughs> what 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 I take it is like what we call AI and what we don't is 
like the degree to which we understand it and then things like mathematical fitting and like even expert systems since it's just a very understandable algorithm uh it, it kind of feels less like what's proper artificial intelligence should be and then the things that seem more proper artificial intelligence like the neural networks and also like some of the genetic uh, algorithm stuff uh it's it's it feels more like a black box like you you throw in inputs and training data and then at some point it's just hopefully maybe starts to work but <laughs> it's, it's 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 there's there's a certain element of uh of voodoo <laughs> of trying things until uh it starts working and the, the right solution kind of emerges out of doing all that instead of actually really deeply fundamentally understanding what is going on there so explainable ai is not ai yes <laughs> <laughs> i found this definition online i wonder what you all think of it it's okay artificial intelligence is what computers can't do yet ah. Visual <laughs> you know, oh i see artificial intelligence with the, yeah i mean that's pretty good i think it's pretty accurate but i mean i think the point you're making matthias is an interesting one because it's also in in self-driving cars and whether we consider those intelligent and there's the kind of if it can act independently then it's intelligent and independence kind of means you can understand it to a certain degree i don't know if that fits together but there's a kind of feeling that if it's just acting you know um not really independently if the driver still has to be sitting in the seat and watching the controls and making sure that everything works out then it's not acting independently. It only is intelligent when you can just say to it, uh, you know, take me to the shops and uh, it'll just set off with you sitting in the back seat. Yeah, but but also I think uh, like if it very strictly follows uh, some algorithm and uh, due to that algorithm, it, it hits a pedestrian, uh, like you would blame the programmer for making a mistake about... Uh, like making the decision apparently there that the pedestrians should be hit. Whereas in a more nebulous artificial intelligence kind of thing, mm. like you could imagine like, no, it's the car's fault. Like the car made a mistake. <laughs> so we could that's put it on true. trial. <laughs> so we could put it on trial that's right. or execute it. Right execute away. No, no, no rights for artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's very important. <laughs> it's very important. So Vivek, uh, since we started this segment, I have uh, cast shade on marketing a couple of times. So do you want to stand up and defend the marketeer's perspective on AI? I think uh, for very generally, I would say, even, even if, you, if you talk about self-driving cars, I, th I think any intelligence is when you learn from history or your past mistakes, like a human would, and you and you improve upon it. I think that's artificial intelligence, wherein a programmer isn't programming uh, something to improve, whereas it's, it's improving on what it's done wrong in the past, uh, and it's it's predicting what will come in the future. I think that is artificial intelligence in some way. It's not just simple automations or improving on uh, redundant tasks, uh, but a constantly improving anything, if it's a car or in the medical space or even education where it can understand individual children and what their requirements are. Yeah, but learning that's very really be poor. Yeah. But the problem with that is that I know uh, a whole bunch of humans that would fail that test. <laughs> <laughs> 
They learn uh, nothing. They just keep doing the same things again and again. So, I mean, it seems... Um, it seems we're we're starting to set standards very high for intelligence and you know Turing tests and this sort of stuff that you know humans sometimes aren't meeting. That's yeah, I, I think the Turing test actually broken right now, right? Like this this GPT three stuff really. Jesus, yeah, got got that's far. Oh I I I was, yeah. I, I was messing around with the GPT because I was doing some uh, some some work with um, Enterprise Ireland um, on some uh, courses, and I was thinking, look, I'll just. I'll get my I'll get the GPT three to write my essays for me, uh, just to see what comes out. And like the stuff that comes out, because it's all you know individually thing. I mean, it, it, it's not great. It's all very a little bit generic and a little bit wooden and quite get stuff a little bit wrong. But it's not far away from you being able to go along and say, you know, write me my history paper on uh, the Christopher Columbus, and it would give you. Uh, a passable thing that you could take into school, which is, which will go around all the plagiarism monitoring that they might have in place for, for, for testing. Yeah, I mean, I have definitely read essays from undergraduate students that didn't uh, meet the quality of GPT-3. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a true story. Of course. I've written those essays. I've submitted them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it's interesting that that um, that, that GPT three stuff is getting close to that Turing test, but it still falls short of what we call AI, or does it? I don't know. I'm I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> I have to say, if it's beating Turing tests, you know, maybe maybe it is. Uh, maybe it's there. Yeah, I I don't know. I I think it's 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 rather showing that the Turing test is flawed. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, like like if if you're measuring like how well can can you uh, pretend to be human, uh, then definitely. But is that is that intelligence? Because apparently there's ways to fool us in in just uh, applying these patterns without actually. Uh, well, I would say that there's no no actual reasoning behind it and stuff. It's 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 a very advanced pattern applier, but. Yeah, we. Well, I that, think there's still something missing there. It's interesting that I mean, you know, because then you're getting into what is intelligence again, uh, as mm-hmm. Sean raised, and whether it's just a different type of intelligence, and will never quite. I mean, like, what I mean to say is, is a computer as smart uh, as intelligent as a mouse? Yeah, or an ant, or an ant, or a dog, or a cow, or a, an octopus which is, you know, a very clever animal, but has taken a different track from humans um, and has all the pattern recognition and, you know, stuff like that. And Or, or is it just something that's on a, a scale that's quite different? Uh, do people think that programming could replicate, uh, let's say, the cognitive, uh, cognitive abilities of a human brain? Or is that not possible? Or is it that... AI will be like another animal in itself. I I think there's fundamentally nothing that the brain does that that couldn't be done with computing. Uh, as for like how difficult it would be, like clearly we haven't done it so far, so but I don't easy. think it's fundamentally impossible now. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I agree that that's the case. I just think whether that's the way it'll go. Like if you get to the point where 
you have a some sort of general AI um, that can self-improve, uh, does it ever kind of go in the direction of a replication of a human brain? Or does it branch right. off somewhere else? Yeah. It doesn't have to, of course, yeah. I mean, of course, there's only two outcomes at that point. Either when they get when they get there, either they self-improve enough that they're able to solve all the problems, or they uh, murder us all. <laughs> Maybe that is the solution to the problem. That's exactly the problem. The problem is that that is the solution to the problem. You say to us, you know, um, we want to. What do we do uh, with these humans? That yeah, really we want to get rid of world hunger. Yeah, but that's what you said earlier. Solve world, world hunger, and as you said, it, I thought, well, the way the computer's going to solve that is by killing all the people. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's definitely one solution. Yeah, it is a solution. You know, nobody's hungry anymore. Um, I mean, not an ideal solution, but a solution all the same. Yeah. What is it that applies to the Conquest song? Like, uh, there's no more elephants, but there's no unethical treatment of elephants eating. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the humans are dead. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we kill with poisonous gases. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great one. It's a great I'll put song. the link to the uh, song in the, in the notes. Uh, so, uh, a final topic uh, for today is could 3D printing change the world? Vivek, what do you think? Yes. 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 Why? Uh, I, I, I think it is, is just way more cost effective. Uh, I think as 2D printers became more accessible uh, to the general public, it changed things for the better. And as 3D printing becomes more accessible, uh, I think right now even the material and stuff is a little harder to get. But once that becomes easier, I think there's a lot more creativity that can be done. Uh, I don't know in terms of, let's say, large-scale building projects and all, where can you actually reach? There's still a lot of R&D left to be done. Uh, but I think it can be used for the better of the world. And but, it's much faster as well. But obviously the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm just going to print myself a gun. I think you can make sure that that's not done. How? How could you possibly make sure? There's desktop metal thing. I'm sure I could print a gun. I'm sure I could go so, on, you know, torrent and get myself so a file. I mean, you, you could build a gun. Though. Like yeah. it's It's not like... You don't have the ability right now. Yeah, if you have a lathe mill and you can buy a lathe mill and you can make a gun with a lathe mill. But it's like, hard. So, but if I could just press like enter <laughs> and I got a gun yeah. out of a machine, that'd be way better. Well, I've, I mean, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is lathe mills today are very much like 3D unprinting because uh, you take a block of something and they just kind of mill it out from a computer specification. Yeah. And so it's pretty much the same kind of thing, except just like the reverse. Yeah. So you, you unprint. So uh, I think I think it's great, though. I mean, and I think that uh, you know we will see uh, these things spread in in terms of the gun uh, approach. Like, okay, so there right now, if you buy a printer in the United States, they actually print out a little secret watermark in the corner of every printed page. So that the FBI can track you down if you try to send like uh, ransom notes and stuff like that. <laughs> do they? They do. So the, this is. I'm looking this at my printer. Much more suspicious. <laughs> you could do it. Or, yeah, you should. Look at but him. He's, they... he's tracking me. <laughs> I, I, think, I think many printers also kind of uh, prevent you from printing money. Like it's yeah, it's true. It recognizes well. the money and it, it blocks fine it out. for me. Oh shit. <laughs> 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 Yeah, 
Yeah, so you could do those kinds of things with the um, with, with the 3D printers as well. But oh. like in terms of like some of the things that are really interesting are the some of the designs that you can make with printing uh, are were sort of impossible to manufacture previously. So if you can do the layering, then there's a lot of things that become possible. And this is starting to be used in a lot of industrial applications. For instance, nuclear reactors. They're they're wow. starting to print parts for nuclear reactors. That and what about like very... complex co compounds, like molecules? Would I be able to? Do you, do you do you think there's a future where I could just print my drugs? Oh wow! Uh -huh. I mean, ha hey, look, all of these things will change the world for the mm. better or worse. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, definitely change the world, but that'd be that'd be cool if you could just be like, okay, I've got to you know fulfill my prescription, and I can just uh, you know print off the molecules here into a, into a set of pills and uh, get stuck in as long that'd as I poured cool. in the right um, you know stuff to to, to manipulate. Uh, it's definitely not what what the prints are doing right now. No, no, no. Yeah. Like I'm, that, I'm, that would be a completely different technological development. Uh, that's like Star Trek some, replicator. Some replicator. Yeah, yeah. Thing. I mean, I suppose, why not, though? I mean, it definitely yeah, be I mean, more complicated, okay. but if you were putting in the right uh, uh, elements or compounds to begin with and then having them printed off. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem is that it, computationally figuring out how yeah. things combine is very, very, very hard at the moment yeah. uh, for us to do. Yeah, but I think there's also, uh, and, and I mean, in general, with with the 3D printing, is uh, the economics are actually not that good. Like it's it's good for uh, prototyping for sure, but uh, for anything where you need large quantities of it, like for example a chemical, uh, a large scale process is is going to serve you better than a generic uh, machine that can do everything. Uh, a large-scale specialized process, I mean. Yeah. And I think you also see it like, sure, we have uh, we have 2D printers, like we have things that can print on paper, but they are not the machines that are being used in like uh, big printing operations. They, they have their, their own things that, that can do the printing at a much higher rate than we could ever achieve at home. Uh, and I think that's kind of uh, how it's always going to be. Like the specialized thing is always going to win over the uh, the general yeah. thing. Oh, and especially what? when it comes to chemicals that, that yeah, what like that having a, a full synthesizer, a full chemical synthesizer in your home is, is <laughs> never going to beat out on, on, on like... Uh, but but yeah, is the, the economics the, tied to uh, the lack of energy? I mean, if we were postulating an energy-rich future where electricity was abundant. And well, that's probably a part of it, but there's also just like a spatial scale, right? Like, yeah. it's not like you can have like a big reactor vat uh, sitting in your garage. Uh, well, you could, so you, you're very limited in <laughs> what could actually, <laughs> what you could actually do in, in like, like a, a decent format that you could actually have at home. Yeah, so some things exhibit economies of scale. And one of those things is like heating uh, something up and trying to keep it hot. Uh, so, and there's lots of chemical processes that want to be done at some kind of high temperature. And how do you do that at home in your vat? What do you think, Robin? Do you, are you investing in a 3D printer? Ooh, I would like one. They are nice for like small little things. What would you Hobby make? Stuff, but like your uh, phone case or guns, your, uh, guns, or some <laughs> nice uh, Mario figure, you know, but not. Uh, 
mass production. So I don't think it will change things significantly, but it is very nice for prototyping indeed and for like hobbyist stuff. Have you seen those uh, the 3D printers that do houses? Like oh, those are pretty yes. cool though, but it's still yeah. in its infancy, right? So yeah, it's very much printing, so. They're very simple uh, houses, but they're cool the way they get they are so cool. quick, eh? Yeah, yeah. I mean that yeah. that sort of speed is a thing, you know. <laughs> it is kind of cool, but but isn't like prefab houses where you just create the components yeah, elsewhere and then ship them there? That's is that not even more efficient still? I agree. I think, I think so, it probably. is. The problem is yeah. we don't do either of them in in Europe for some unknown <laughs> yeah. reason. Yeah. So yeah, I just serious. I, I was looking to see the price of a 3D printer uh, because I didn't know how much they priced it today. And I searched for pre 3D printer and the top story is woman becomes first to get new 3D printed ear made from what? her own wow. cells in revolutionary oh, wow. transport. Oh, that's so, cool, isn't it? Things that's are going places. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> definitely it. No, but yeah, that, so that, that's, that's also kind of where, where it does shine, right? Like the sort of things where you're not producing a lot of it, but it's really like one or two of a thing that you're going to need. Yeah, like NASA's uh, developed into this new alloy uh, using 3D printing, uh, which is uh, at 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. It, it, is, it performs better than current state-of-the-art alloys, including twice the strength to resist fracturing, Three and a half times the flexibility and more than a thousand times the durability under stress. Wow. Wow. Uh, so they, they, and they actually, I mean, uh, 3D printing is key to how they do it because they basically take little, I think little, you know, balls of one alloy and then they coat those with something else, uh, an oxide, some kind of uh, thing there. And then when they combine it using the 3D printing, it makes the whole thing stronger. Wow. So yeah, so that kind of interleaving of materials is, is yep. you know, one of those things that can be done with three D yeah, printing. Yeah, like graphene. Hard to, graphene, yeah. sort of laying on the layers of graphene. Yeah. Um, so th they're under five hundred euros, and I mean that's in Ireland, where the prices are triple everywhere else on the planet. So uh, that'll be very small, though, right? Yeah, still small, yeah. but still, you know, pushing out printers for three hundred euros. I wonder how much the inputs that you put in there. Uh, yeah, that might be the, but the amount of copyright infringement that might start happening once 3D printers become common yeah. would go up significantly. Well, so I was wandering around Vienna, you know, and there's all the uh, facades on the buildings, and that's something that just kind of completely went away in the 20th century, where between like the 19th and 20th century, you'd have these very elaborate statues and stuff like that on things. Uh, and then we've gone to this very utilitarian um, style, and like now nobody know, even knows how to make a statue or carve a statue. But something like 3D printing, you could have designs where people would, you know, make very elaborate statues again, and you could imagine it being sort of cost-effective to do this by having a designer come up with some, you know, bespoke design. But then you have a, like then a sort of intellectual property then starts having physical meaning. So it's like because you could have people stealing designs that are used. I don't know. It's, it's so you're kind of you're envisioning way. the next Notre Dame uh, being built with loads of gargoyles that are 3D printed. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't I mean, be like cool. designed by designers on computer to make them look really cool. I mean, it would be would be yeah. Cool. I mean, it's 
But there's also the one like the that you mentioned, Matthias, which I think is an important application for the future. You know, God forbid that uh, one day uh, our hips fail um, and we are forced to get a replacement hip. And at the moment we get one that's, you know, generically manufactured um, and then fitted in. And OK, it's made of some advanced material. Let's hope that it's titanium or something else like that. But being able to print an individual hip in something that uh, is bone-like um, and fits exactly where your hip was before it seems to me an enormous advantage and something that's very individual because it's to do with the way that your joints grew together. Yeah. I mean, I definitely can see it with like a world where I can 3D print uh, bones and stuff like that to, 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 to latch onto my body. I mean, I don't think I could be limited to two years. I could go through maybe six or seven <laughs> years in a life. Nice. So we're going for augmentations. Uh, why not? You know, yeah. there, was, there was that mouse that had the ear on his back. So I think I want a glowing one. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, that was fantastic. We'll be back next week with uh, body augmentations. <laughs> uh, we'll see who has the best 3D printed body augmentation next week. It's a, a contest. Between the, I'm gonna have between, an artificially intelligent uh, 3D printed augmentation. Oh, that'd be sweet. nice, yeah. nice, nice. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a. Uh, I have a lump in the middle of my head where he lives. <laughs> 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 All right, guys, that was fantastic. Thanks a lot for joining us today. We will be back next week, as every week with cracking code. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Ciao.